Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Mark Gerson. He is an entrepreneur and philanthropist. He's the founder of Gerson Lehrman Group, African Mission Healthcare, and United Hatzalah of Israel. His new book is The Telling, how Judaism's essential book reveals the meaning of life. Welcome, Mark. Mark, thank you so much. It's so good to be with you today. Okay, now the meaning of life. This is a very somber, deep philosophical book. There's nothing practical or concrete in this book. Is that correct? The entire book is meant to be completely practical, totally concrete, and immediately actionable. And in fact, that's who I read the Haggadah and the work from which it derives, which is, of course, the Bible or the Torah, is that the Torah tells us what it is in Deuteronomy 10.7. It says, this book is for your benefit. And the Haggadah is the greatest hits of the Torah. So it, too, must be for our benefit. What does it mean to be for our benefit? It's to help us live better lives, live happier lives, and live just a more meaningful existence in the most practical, everyday way. And that's what the Haggadah and the Bible does for us. And what is wrong? Well, we'll get down to specifics uh, because, again, this is this really is a, a, a great book on precisely the opposite of what, what I was saying. The concrete, a great value of your book, Mark, is the patient, detailed breakdown of all the pieces of this core uh, ritual process that you're going to describe. All the pieces, big and small. If, if I could make a comment here on contemporary life, it really highlights the importance of the explanation of ritual to the young. And, and that, that's something, I mean, as a teacher, I, I see that the young don't really have a lot of feel for the deep meaning of 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 rituals and, and and moments occasions and following certain guidelines i mean this is why one sponsor of first things is a company called aleph beta which produces videos for kids and teens on basic subjects such as uh, well one of them i looked up recently was the spiritual meaning of kosher meat do you see the telling as sort of a serving among other things a pedagogical tool for parents in working with their kids Absolutely. I mean, uh, Mark, what a beautiful way to, to put it. Yes, is that um, Jewish rituals are all completely explicable. I mean, they're easily understood by everybody who does them, and uh, or they can be easily understood by everybody who does them. They're designed to be easily understood by everyone who does them, and they're constructed specifically to help us live better lives in line with what the Bible would suggest. And the Passover Seder is exactly an example of that. So what is the Passover Seder? Well, the Passover Seder is the ritual meal that we have during our holiday of Passover or Pesach. It is an act of reliving and retelling the story of the Exodus. And we are effectively 
beginning again or doing again the last meal in Egypt, which happened in Exodus 12. And so what is the purpose to all this? It is the opposite of an empty religious ritual. It is totally full and totally understandable by everybody. It is the great Jewish New Year celebration. Passover, Pesach, is the authentic and biblically ordained Jewish New Year. The Bible tells us this. It says this shall occur at the head of months. This is our New Year. So what do we do at a Passover Seder? We sit down at our New Year celebration. And what does one do at a New Year? This is very understandable to us in a secular context or any other kind of religious context. We take inventory of ourselves now. We try to think, who am I really at this, really at this moment? And then we think, who can I be and who do I want to be in the year to come? And what resolutions and what commitments should I take towards becoming that kind of person or a member of that kind of people? To, to start, you have uh, some misgivings about the term Passover. Why is that? Well, the term Passover, exactly what you say, it, it's a misnomer. I think it's a mistranslation. Because the term Passover is based on the notion that immediately prior to the 10th plague, we put blood on our doorposts so God or his messenger, the destroyer, would know which homes were the Jewish homes and would know which ones to pass over. But there are several, several logical fallacies in that. One, God knew at several of the previous plagues, including the ninth plague, darkness, which ones were the Jewish homes, which only makes sense because God does not need a sign to know which homes are Jewish homes and which homes are Egyptian homes. He's God and will know that on his own as he's proven in several previous plagues. Moreover, if the destroyer is coming to slay the firstborn, and we can get into what it means to be the firstborn, it's definitely not in a chronological sense, but if the destroyer is coming to slay the firstborn, would we want God passing over our homes? No, of course not. What would we want God doing? We would want God pasaking. That's the Hebrew term, pasak. And what does pasak mean? We know exactly what it means from Isaiah 31.6. It means to hover over in a spirit of rescuing and protecting and watching. So what's happening at the, on the last meal in Egypt, on the, that fateful last night in Egypt, is that God is hovering over, God's protecting us, and, uh, and that's the reference from Isaiah, and uh, that's exactly the kind of God that we want in our lives always, a God who hovers over, protects, and when necessary, rescues. You, you, you note, for, before really getting into it, that the ritual of the Seder is expanding. More and more people are, are getting involved. Why, why do you think this is happening? Uh, well, it, it, yes, it, you're, you're exactly right. Um, uh, Pesach has always been the most celebrated Jewish holiday. Um, even very secular Jews who do little if nothing else ritually, they somehow find within themselves a need to go to a Passover or Pesach Seder. And uh, that's why there are Pesach Seders um, all over the world, often specifically or largely for travelers, because every Jew feels the need in ways that we can articulate and ways that we cannot articulate to get to a Pesach Seder, because it is the central night of the Jewish year. It is, as we talked about, the Jewish New Year, when we, with the help of the Haggadah, which channels the greatest hits of Jewish thought, when we take inventory of who we are, and we make commitments to who we want to be. But also, really, in the last 20 years, and even much more recently than that, there's been this um, really incredible um, explosion of... Uh, uh, Christians attending seders, and this is often with uh, Christians attending Jewish seders, and all of our seders, except for the ones during COVID, of course, with only immediate family. But all of our seders have uh, Christian guests, and it is 
so often, in fact, it is, I would say, always the Christian guest who comes to the Seder with such freshness, with such newness, that that ends up in the offering of new insights that come from Christian experience, Christian teachings, and just this great appreciation of the awesomeness that the Passover Seder is before them. And there are also probably tens of thousands of Seders that Christians hold in churches as well. And, uh, and I think this is um, really part of what I think is a world historical moment that we're living through, which is that of this great uh, Jewish-Christian friendship. And, uh, you know, there's a curse in the Bible, in the book of Numbers, when the Gentile seer Balaam curses the Jews, and this is a curse. He says, you will be a people who dwells alone. And that's a curse. And now the curse is lifted. We are no longer a people who dwells alone because of the millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of friends we have among Christians. And now with the Abraham Accords, some, many Muslims as well. This is entirely new. And uh, this uh, Christian love of all things Jewish, and I really mean all things Jewish, this is love of the Jewish state, love of the Jewish religion, uh, love of Jewish teaching. Um, this is uh, a world historic moment. It's entirely new. It's probably within the last 40 years. And, uh, and, it's, and, and as you said, Mark, it's, its focal point is, as it is for Jews, it's the Seder. And that's why so many Christians are finding themselves gravitating to attend Passover Seders as well. Why is the preparation for the Seder so careful? I mean, it's very tightly scripted. What does that imply? Well, it's a great question. So the great Rob Joseph Soloveitchik, he said, uh, everything holy involves preparation. Everything holy. And, uh, and of course, the, um, the event uh, or the experience to which that most faithfully applies is the Pesach Seder, where... And this is, again, the Bible. So when we do the Pesach Seder, it's amazing and, in fact, awesome to just remember that we are reliving Exodus 12. So no matter how secular or how religious somebody is, when we sit down at a Pesach Seder, we are reliving Exodus 12. We can open up the Bible and we can say, that's the script, I'm making the movie. And, and we make and we remake every year faithfully to Exodus 12. So, um, but the Pesach Seder that was um, really the last meal in Egypt uh, in Exodus 12, it was designed two weeks before. So the, the last meal in Egypt is in the middle of the month, the 15th day, but the script was written on the first day. So even in the book of Exodus, there's this extensive two-week preparation. So why so much preparation? Why didn't we think about what the preparation is? It tells us why there's so much. So what are just some of the acts of preparation we should do? Well, probably the most important act of preparation we can do is what we're doing now. It's just discussing the great ideas, the existential meaning, and the awesome opportunity that the Pesach Seder represents. And this can happen all year. And in fact, we talk about Pesach being the Jewish New Year. We have Rosh Hashanah. We have other New Years. We have multiple New Years. So do we as Americans. As Americans, we have January 1st. We have our National New Year on July 4th. We have our personal New Year on our birthday. We have our relationship new year and anniversary we have our education new year in september all teaching us that a new year is too great an opportunity for us to to experience only once every 12 months so uh we have to prepare for this so in, even in this discussion right now we could be this could be construed as preparing for next year's pesach or preparing for a, one of the many new years that's going to be between now and 
PASOC of next year. So what are the specific acts of preparation? This is a general act. It's kind of understanding the great ideas that are in the Haggadah to try to help us live that better and happier life. Um, and that can happen all year, and that's why the Haggadah is a book for all time. Now, the specific uh, preparations for Pesach are also very telling. So what do we do the night before Pesach? Well, the night before Pesach, again, following exactly what the Bible tells us, we cleanse our households of hametz. So hametz is any kind of breaded product. We rid our homes of all the hametz, and we do it very carefully. We do it with a brush, a pan, a feather, and a candle. Well, the brush, the pan, and the feather are used to get rid of all the hametz. And so we have to cleanse it from our homes. So why do we cleanse it from our homes? Again, Mark, getting back to your earlier question, there's no empty religious rituals here. It's all very meaningful. We get rid of the hametz from our homes because if we leave bread out on, on our kitchen table, how long is it good for? I don't know, three or four days. In other words, bread doesn't last, hametz doesn't last, whereas if we salt something or we have masa, how long will the masa, how long will the salted product last? Salt is the ancient preservative. You put salt on yeast, it does not rise. You get matzah. So when we get rid of the hametz, we are getting rid of the impermanence and we, are, and we are bringing in the matzah. We are bringing in the permanence. We're focusing on what in my life do I want to be permanent in the coming year and what in my life do I want to get rid of? So on the night before this great celebration of, of the Seder, we get rid of the hametz physically from our, our homes and we do it with those items. Okay, so it's pretty obvious why we do it with, with the, the, the brush, the feather, and the pan. We do it because, uh, well, we scoop it up, and then we do it by, by, by candlelight. So we look for it carefully. Those are the items we scoop it up, and we do it by candlelight. Why we do it by candlelight? For the same reason we have candlelit dinners, to give an air of seriousness to the event. So this is so getting rid of the impermanence and bringing in the permanence. This is a very serious moment, so we do it by candlelight. We turn off the electric lights. We do it by candlelight. And then what do we do in the morning? We burn the brush, the pan, and the feather, and all the hamates, and we also burn the candle. So why, why do we burn the candle? Well, we burn the other stuff because it touched the hamates. So we have to get rid of the hamates. You can't just bring the feather back in. The feather's full of hamates, so we, get, we burn that. But the candle didn't touch any hamates. So why do we also burn the candle? Because the only purpose of the candle is to search for negativity. So therefore, it has to go too. And this is really the spirit that we approach this great holiday, is we get rid of the impermanence, we bring in the permanence, and those things which were used just to look for negativity, we get rid of them. And the other thing is, we only have to search for hametz in the rooms that we were in. So if there's a room in your house that you weren't in, you don't have to search for hametz there. So why is that? Again, it's, it's not an empty religious ritual. It's quite the opposite. It's to teach us that on this great night of ex where we take an existential inventory, this is a night to focus on improving ourselves. So we're not supposed to look for the hametz for the imperfections for the wrongs in other people we're supposed to look for it in ourselves so if we weren't in that room we don't have to go there and search for it again we're only searching where we were and what we did let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a catholic university where the greatest works of western and catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium that's the university of dallas in irving texas Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You say that, quote, the logic of the Seder 
starts with the egg. Please explain. This is another one of the fascinating and indeed awesome aspects of the Seder, which is the, the great continuity that the Seder embodies. And this is continuity both horizontally, whereas Jews all over the world celebrate at exactly the same time, in more or less exactly the same way, as have Jews historically. So if Moses were to come into my Seder, God willing, next year, there would be some songs he wouldn't recognize and some practices that would be different, but he would know exactly what we're doing. He would know that we're reliving and retelling the story of the Exodus. And one of the many um, that just as, as he designed and he told us to, and, and one of the uh, many aspects of continuity, this one doesn't stretch back quite as far as Moses, but it is thousands of years old. Is that is a Seder plate. So you could, we could go to a Seder from 750 years ago and find the same ritual foods on that table as we see on our table right now. And one of those items is going to be the egg. Now, whenever we, we look at a ritual object, or in fact any kind of symbol, where we tend to ask, well, where did that come from and what does it mean? Now, one of the great truths we learned from the Seder in reference to, um, and really deriving from the, the, the Bible, is the fact that, that there can be multiple meanings, multiple truths, deriving from the same symbol that are not at all contradictory, but that complement each other. So, for example, the egg. So every Seder plate for thousands of years all over the world has had an egg. So why does it have an egg? Well, one explanation is that the egg uh, represents the cycle of life. And an egg is a traditional Jewish symbol of mourning. So why would we be having, why would we have a symbol of mourning at our great festival of freedom? Well, it's for the same reason, probably, that when we get married, we uh, Jewish men smash a uh, glass, we crush a glass with our feet um, underneath the chuppah, which is the wedding canopy, to teach us that even in moments of great joy, we have to recognize the existence and, in fact, the persistence of tragedy. And similarly, during tragic times, like during a shiva, which is the seven-day period following a death, we don't sit shiva on Shabbat, because even in our times of great sorrow, we have to acknowledge joy. So this is the cycle of life that the egg embodies. Now, there's another school of thought, which would never say the first school of thought is wrong. They, would, they wouldn't say, or they would say, and they would say that the egg is like the Jew, in that the harder you boil it, the tougher it gets. So, which is right? Well, they're both right. And there are other interpretations true, as well, teaching us a great truth. <laughs> That's good. That's good. You, you have um, a, a heading which is, quote, the greatest principle of the Torah. I think our listeners want to know what that is. Well, so that's very interesting. So there was, there's a, uh, uh, we can call it a religious parlor game, and I think it would be interesting in, in, in all of our uh, synagogues and churches to play this game. And the parlor game, this is in the Talmud, is uh, what is the most important verse in the Torah? And uh, um, several of the greatest rabbis of all time participated in this seeming contest. And uh, three of the rabbis named uh, basically the greatest hits, three of the biblical verses that everyone would recognize and be inspired by and try to live by. And then comes Ben Pazi, and Ben Pazi says, nope, the greatest line in the Torah is Exodus 29, 39, which says that you shall offer a lamb in the morning and one in the afternoon. And everyone acknowledged by a claim that Ben Pazi won, that that is the greatest line in the entire Bible, leading one to ask, why? Why would this seemingly prosaic instruction 
be greater than any of the awesome and inspiring and cosmically uplifting lines throughout the rest of the Bible? And the answer is because it's all about constancy. Because what it means to live a faithful life, what it means to live a godly life, is not just experiencing those rare moments of sublimeness, but devotion all day, every day. I did it in the morning, I'll do it in the afternoon. That's what we should aspire to. And th- that's what it means to be, and this says it, all, it says it several times throughout the Torah, to be tamim with God, to be wholehearted with God, is that I'm always with you in the morning and the afternoon. Tomorrow, in the morning, in the afternoon. Because how do we conceive of God? We conceive that we have a relationship with God. And what kind of relationship do we want with our spouse? What kind of relationship do we want with our children? It's like the traditional wedding vow, in sickness and in health. In other words, it's the constancy. It's in the morning, it's in the evening, it's in the afternoon, it's all the time. And so we we learn from this being the most important line in the Bible that everyone agrees is that what's important is that we learn the principles and then we execute them and we live by them in the proverbial morning and the afternoon with constancy. That brings me to another point that you make regarding the constancy. You say that it is essential, it is obligatory that we tell and retell and retell nonstop the story of the Exodus. Why do we have to keep doing this? Well, I mean, what, what a terrific question that is. And you're so right that, that it's not just telling. In fact, it's not telling. It's retelling. We relive and we retell. And uh, the Exodus is, is the great story of humans, mankind's yearning for freedom. The, the language of freedom that the world speaks is, is Exodus. That is the language of freedom. And uh, we see this particularly all throughout American history, uh, but we see it all throughout the world. And we, we see it in our personal struggles. We see it in our political struggles. We see it in our existential struggles. We see, we see uh, these questions written in the language of freedom. So whatever we're living through now, whether um, individually, psychologically, nationally, internationally, we are reliving the great story of the Exodus. That's our charge, is to relive the great story of the Exodus because it's in the Exodus that God told us what is most important to him. And what's most important to him is that people be free. And, uh, and so when we, when we relive and we retell and we study again and again this great story of the Exodus, we learn what does God mean by freedom and what can freedom mean for me? And what are the obligations of freedom that I have and that I can accept in this coming year. You find there are two sons in the Haggadah, the wise son and the wicked son. Who are those guys? So, yeah, very interesting question. So the, the Haggadah, so in that section of the Haggadah, it says there, shall, there, there are four sons, the wise son, the wicked son, the simple son, and the son who does not know how to ask a question. So one of the interesting questions about the existence of multiple sons is not why are there four, uh, but why is there not one? I mean, uh, someone might think that a religious tradition would have, what's the question, here's the answer. Well, not the Jewish tradition. We say there are four sons teaching us. Now, why are there four sons? Because I believe the night is too short for there to be 400,000 sons. Because what it's teaching us is that our God, of course, our one God, um, our one God is a big God. And if there are many ways to get from wherever a listener is right now to where I am on the Upper West Side of New York, Think of how many more ways there are to get to our big, infinite God. And, that there, and so some people get through God intellectually. Some people get through God through prayer. Some people get through God by saying, you know what, I'm going to go build something for God. 
Other people say, I'm just going to devote myself completely to service. There's so many ways to get to God, and by acknowledging the existence of four sons, what we're really teaching ourselves, and more importantly, we're teaching our children, is that God made each of you to be unique. You are, if, if God is quintessentially unique, which of course he is, and each of our children is created in God's image, which of course they are, then each child must be quintessentially unique himself, and therefore each child has a way of accessing God that is going to be completely genuine, totally authentic, totally designed and desired by God. And what's our role as parents? It's absolutely not to try to get that child to approach God in the way that we do or the way that we envisioned them to do, but we should try to acknowledge what is sacred and what is unique about that child and how can I encourage that child with the capacity of their sacred uniqueness to access God in that way. You say that it is very important that we remember that, quote, our ancestors were idol worshipers. Why is that important? Well, yes, it's, 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 uh, it's, well, it's very important for, for a number of reasons. The first is that um, it's, it's the way Jews tell a story. So in, in that section of the Haggadah, we start by saying our ancestors were idol worshipers. And one of the things that, it, that kind of everyone who, who begins to really study the Torah and inevitably, because this is always what happens when you begin to study, you just fall in love with the Torah, is, is you realize, wow, like everyone in, this, in the Torah is completely flawed. Like there, there is, it's almost, it's, it's sometimes saying, well, if, if I name my child after this, this uh, character in the Torah, like there are a lot of characteristics I don't want my child to have. And, uh, and the answer is, well, when, when, when Jews tell stories, we tell them completely honestly. So we, we know that every person is imperfect. We know that every story is imperfect, to put it mildly. And so we, we, said, we start our story by saying, in the beginning, we were idol worshipers. Judaism is not a religion of fairy tales. It's a religion of stories, but not of fairy tales. So, uh, so yes, we, we, be, we begin the story by saying we're, we're idol worshipers, and then and, and we tell how we are uh, progressed to come embrace the one true God. And, uh, and when we, we say that, we also um, uh, really acknowledge, and we begin to think about, well, it, how, how might this, the persistence of idolatry still be with me today? How might I not have shaken it completely? And then we begin to think, well, what is idolatry really? If idolatry was really just the worshiping of stone dogs, it w- that went away a long time ago, and why would it be prohibited so often in the Bible, considering the Bible is written for our benefit in our current time, whatever our current time is? It's because idolatry is not an ancient phenomenon that we got rid of. It's a persistent phenomenon that we should continue to get rid of. And so what is idolatry fundamentally? It's anything that gets between us and God. So and in terms of its ultimate allegiance. So anything that we say, um, that's what I really want, that's what I really aspire to, instead of God, not en route to God, but instead of God, that thing becomes an idol. So it teaches us that our ultimate allegiance, which we should think about and act towards every single day, should only be towards God, and that everything else should be a means of helping us to get to God, but not an end in itself. On the, on the character issue, uh, you actually consider Pharaoh a teacher. What does he teach? Well, what did the Jews learn from Pharaoh? Well, that, that's a great point. The, Jew, the Jews, so the Jews learn a lot, and, and it's, it's, it's a core tenet of Jewish teaching that we can learn from everybody. And so, the, so what did we learn from Pharaoh? So we learned several things from Pharaoh, but l- let's just talk about one thing we learned from Pharaoh. So 
It's a, the, the ten plagues have concluded. The tenth plague is the slaying of the firstborn. So God sends ten plagues against the Egyptians. Of course, God goes there. Ten plagues, ten for ten. They, they all they all happen just as God designed. Of course. So the tenth plague, slaying of the firstborn happens. Uh, what might one think Pharaoh would do after ten plagues, including the slaying of the firstborn? What would one think Pharaoh would do? Well, most people would think that the Pharaoh would say, "Okay, finally, I, I've been defeated. I realized I was wrong." Uh, I realized that I should free the Jews, A, and B, I realized that there is one true God. And in the book I discuss how the seventh plague, the hail plague, God reveals himself to the Egyptians to be the one true God. One would think that by the tenth plague, the Pharaoh would realize that he's been defeated, that his ideology was wrong, and that he should change his mind. So what happens after the tenth plague? Well, after the tenth plague, the Pharaoh sent out his charioteers, now, the word charioteers in the Hebrew text is in the singular, showing us that they had one mind. So there are obviously many chariots, but interestingly, the word is in the singular. So all these chariots go out with one mind to, to re-enslave the Jews on our way out into the desert. He's, and this is, of course, the great scene from the, the, the various movies of the Exodus, where uh, the Pharaoh sends his charioteers to come bring us back and to enslave us again. So what do we have to learn from this? Well, God gave the Pharaoh and the Egyptians 10 plagues, including the slaying of the firstborn. If 10 plagues, including the slaying of the firstborn, does not change the Pharaoh's mind, how am I going to change anyone's mind by posting a political position on Facebook or anywhere else? So what do we learn from this? We learn that it is exceedingly difficult to change people's minds. And uh, we see this right in the Exodus text. We see the... Ten plagues, including the slaying of the firstborn. At the end of it all, Pharaoh is just where he was ideologically at the beginning. His mind does not get changed at all. So what does it have to teach us? Well, I think it has to teach us a lot of things, and it's certainly worthy of real investigation and contemplation. Last question, Mark. Uh, Is deep and lasting gratitude the, the place where we are to be at the end of the Seder? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so, um, and, and we see this in an, a, a number of places. One is when we finally get around to telling the story of the Exodus um, in the Haggadah, we actually don't even use the Exodus text. We use the text from Deuteronomy 26, which is the farmer's declaration. This is where the farmer, uh, who is actually in Moses' imagination, I have a chapter on why the imagination is so important. And, uh, and, but the farmer is in Moses' imagination. The farmer goes and offers his first fruits at the temple. And it's through the farmer, who is in Moses' imagination, that we tell the story. So how does the farmer feel and, and when, when he uh, offers his first fruits? A wash in gratitude. The harvest has successful. And we see this in the Deuteronomic text 20, in Deuteronomy 26. I talk about it in the book. Just this, the farmer feels complete gratitude. So when we tell the story, we do it in the mind and in the words of the farmer. In other words, we tell the story in complete gratitude. And then we come to a very interesting section towards the um, end of Megid, which is the main section of the Haggadah, which is three rabbis are having what certainly seems to be a miracle counting contest about how many miracles occurred at the sea. One rabbi says 50, one says 200, one says 250. The, The person says 250 is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva wins because he is the most and because... It ends with Rabbi Akiva, who was the greatest, probably the greatest. So 250, it's better we learn to count 250 miracles than to count 
anything fewer. So why is that? And I think we can all appreciate this in our daily lives, is that if we wake up in the morning and we acknowledge more miracles throughout the day rather than fewer miracles, we will be happier, we will be more fulfilled, and we will be more grateful. It's something everybody can do. If we wake up tomorrow morning and we say, oh my God, it was kind of like I was, I was dead for the last few hours, but now I'm full of life. And then we say, no one really understands the incredible intricacies that enable the human eye to see, but I just opened mine and I see. And then, you know what? I went to the bathroom and I turned on the shower and the water came out at exactly the temperature I wanted. And then I went downstairs and I saw my children laughing and just miracles all day to the extent we can count more miracles like Rabbi Akiva did in the Haggadah, we'll be happier. And when we're happier in that sense, in the sense of being grateful, what does a grateful person do? Gratitude is an inherently social emotion. People who are grateful automatically love to share their gratitude with others. They love to share their blessings. And, uh, and this is what it means to be happy. It's what it means to be grateful. And it's what it means to, to, to be a truly fulfilled Jew. There is much, much more to discuss in this rich book, which is The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book recalls, reveal, Reveals the Meaning of Life. Thank you, Mark Gerson. Thank you so much, Mark. What a great conversation. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.